0: Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio Interactive live chat room at TNTradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom.
1: Today's News Talk Radio,
0: TNT. You're listening to Connecting the Dots with Matt Aron
1: on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. TNT. Welcome to this week's Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. I'm Matt Arid. I'm your host. And as always, I'm going to be talking to three very, very interesting guests who have something very interesting and important to say, strategic to say about not only where we are, but also how we got here and what is possible for the future. That's, that's always something to keep in mind is the past, present and the future as a dynamic, hence connecting the dots. What's the context shaping the world that we're living in, um, which is why I'm very happy that uh, for the first conversation I'm going to have today Uh, It's my first time that I'm going to be chatting officially with uh, Peli Nirov-Taylor, who is somebody who has their own show here on TNT Radio, but a very interesting background, somebody who's written five books going through matters of deep history, uh, mapping out deep state structures um, within a historical process, which is, I think, very important, as well as two documentaries that people can watch on Amazon Prime, um, dealing with the the collapse, the self-mutilation of Sweden as well as uh, something on Olaf Palma which I also find interesting and I'd, I'd like to maybe know a little bit more about that and that might come up um but he's also a, a great geopolitical analyst who's got his finger on the pulse of a lot of the developments in Eastern Europe the on the emerging um arsonists that are creating fires unnecessarily on the borders and periphery around uh, Russia and more broadly so Peli thank you so much for being uh, the first guest today
2: hi thanks Great to be I here. I
1: gotta say, I, I uh, looking a little bit into your background, your history. I, you've been somebody who's been on the inside of the mainstream media industrial complex. You've worked at the yeah. Economist. You've written for the Financial Times, the Lancet. You've yeah. you've been editor. At what point did you um sh- did you realize did you go in there already realizing the scope of corruption within mainstream media um, narrative formation or is and and is this something you want to influence positively by infusing some of your own insights and honesty? Or is that something that you kind of came to later on in your career, realizing why wow, this is not, this is toxic. This is not working for me.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm not going to make a lot of friends by saying this <clears throat> because I started out as a sort of believer of the Western way. You know, I was very anti-communist, whatever that means when you're 15 or 16 in 1980s Sweden, went to England, went to Westminster, which is a. As famous as Eton in the UK. I mean, it's really the top school, apart from, along with Eton and Charterhouse and St. Paul's and Harrow. And, uh, you know, you feel like a king once you've graduated from one of, one of those schools. And um, I, went, uh, I went to university and then I became a journalist. And I, uh, I remember going to Russia in the early 90s and feeling like a conquering hero. You know, we'd won ideologically, and the girls were easy and the vodka was cheap. And so many stories, so many adventures. And somebody pointed a gun at you, well, you're English, so bugger off, you know. And then I went to work at a I, I wrote paper articles for The Economist. And people twice my age in sort of ill-fitting suits in the Soviet um, or post-Soviet offices were kind of literally quivering, you know. And there I was 23 or 24 years old with The Economist, a sort of metaphorical dreadnought, you know, metaphorical dreadnought's gun, as it were, of the British Empire. And I didn't think so. I thought just, and they were, and I was saying, I was really self-righteous, you know, and I guess uh, I remember this was Estonia, and they hated me. They thought I was a KGB agent, and then I was an MI6 agent, and I thought, MI6 agent, that's preposterous. That's so preposterous. But actually... um, there are quite close links between the british media and mi6 which is a british intelligence agency so they were wiser than than i was for the record i've never been approached by any intelligence agency mi6 haven't approached me kgb or their successors haven't approached me nothing like that and then I, I think mi6 probably wouldn't don't think i'm a re- reliable enough person to keep secrets or do their bidding or whatever anyway and then i um i, I got a job with a paper called the european which was um a, a sort of, we covered European affairs, and I, I wrote a lot about Eastern Europe and the and the um, departure of the Soviet soldiers from Eastern Europe peacefully. I hasten to add, which is much more than the French did from Algeria in 1961. And they were so. I I got. I'm I'm. You could say I'm of the Gorbachev generation, and that is in the sense that for me the Russians were peaceful and uh modest and and they withdrew from their empire with good grace as far as i could see and maybe that generation of of westerners only lasted five years because then other things came into the scene so I I i had very good experience with the russians you know and um but then i went to work at the european and and i did fun articles i mean i remember trying to buy some plutonium (laughs) in a in a market in latvia i don't know if it was bogus probably was but i thought it was maybe real so i wrote it up as if it was a real story and i think my elders say well yeah he's he doesn't know he's buying bogus uranium plutonium but it's so convincing we'll write it and we'll put sort of quotation marks around it you know but i wrote it as a serious i didn't i thought maybe this is plutonium all the Russians were selling off all their equipment as they were leaving Eastern Europe. And uh, because you could buy, sell a Kalashnikov for a hundred dollars and you get $3 a, a, a month in wages. So it was a big deal. And people were selling off them, uh, Mig make 29s and maybe also plutonium anyway. So I had great fun at the European, but in subsequent years I've learned at who was, the, I was the sort of East Europe correspondent or East European special correspondent. Who was the Paris correspondent to the European? It was Ghislaine Maxwell, right? You know, she is, she's the, um, the procuress of, um, uh, you know, Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Epstein, okay? And that's incredible. And I don't know, I never saw her bylines, but the the backstory of that is that her father was Robert Maxwell, and Robert Maxwell is a famous tycoon in 1980s Britain, the sort of chief rival of Rupert Murdoch. They're as famous as each other. And then Rupert Maxwell fell off a back of his cruise ship in uh, 1991, and I joined just six months after and I think a lot of people, and I think Maxwell had intelligence links to both Mossad and, and MI6. And I think that um, a lot of the recruits at the European, I didn't realize it then, they were much, I was the youngest journalist there, were, actually had intelligence backgrounds, you know. And I don't ha- know how common that is in, in uh, Fleet Street uh, uh, overall, or whether it was just Maxwell's particular penchant for people from MI6 or the Foreign Office. So, mm. uh, but I mean, I didn't realize that till later. And then I d- went and did other things. And I, re- I think. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the realization came from uh, reading outside my I mean, you never find out these things inside. If you're sitting in London and you're almost at the pinnacle of journalism, you're not going to go around speculating about these things because, you know, you don't get another job. It's it's almost instinctive. You don't talk about these things. And I've never heard it spoken about. But I I remember maybe it was the early days of the Internet. uh, I mean, there are a lot of American books written about, for instance, Operation Mockingbird. And there's a very famous article by Carl Bernstein who was the, one of the Washington Post duo who kind of fell out with his colleague, you know, um, Bob Woodward, who had, he had an intelligence background, whereas Bernstein was a typical sort of hippie, really anti-establishment guy. And I can, he always been, remained true to his his spirit. And he wrote a 25,000-word article for Rolling Stone magazine where he kind of listed all the U.S. assets, um, in, uh, U.S. CIA assets in the U.S. media from you know, CBS's William Paley to uh, the the, um, Time magazine, C.D. Jackson, and who else? Uh, Life magazine uh, and New York Times, Washington Post itself. Um, And all these newspapers, they either gave um, press cards to CIA agents or they hired, CIA hired journalists or journalists just gave away their stuff to the CIA or or leaked CIA stories, which they found convenient. I mean, the various levels of... um, of collaboration. Mm. And I suppose this is all, all this is what we call the deep state or part of the deep state. Um, but nothing of similar magnitude has been written about what the British press, the British are much more secretive, much more circumspect, much more skilled, you could say. And I think that, um I mean, there are hundreds of books written about the CIA and um uh, far two or three, maybe uh, a serious books have written about MI6 and almost none of those books contain anything about the mi6 fleet street nexus which i think is probably i think mi6 are probably much more skilled at manipulating the media than the cia is america's a much more open society anyway Mm -hmm. um i but i I just i i stayed i for some reason i stayed true to my original beliefs i guess i mean what journalism is is not to be affiliated to the intelligence services just to tell the truth or I, i don't know i never thought i was a particularly idealistic person but maybe i am you know um anyway well, um, you, you
1: definitely held on to to something fundamentally human the, this whole time, and it's really come to light. And, and I think you've used your experience very well in terms of generating very insightful commentary and analysis into diagnosing what is the problem with our society. I mean, you you alluded to, as you just pointed out, Project Mockingbird is something many people may not even know about at this point. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't even know. It, it was very well publicized in the 70s when the stuff all came right. to light during the church committee hearings and, and everything else That's right. regarding the, the CIA's massive influence over... Uh, every single media outlet you could imagine, even journalists, editors, you name it, producers. Uh, but then we were sort of given the story that uh, they cleaned up their act. You know, 1974 happened. The uh, the American intelligence agencies cleaned up their acts became, you know, they stopped doing regime change ab- abroad. We have the National Endowment for Democracy for that now anyway. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now that they're exposed, they're 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 doing the right thing. and. And again, we don't really hear about how this is obviously just a shadow of a higher power, um, much more sophisticated. And Britain has obviously been at this a lot mm-hmm. longer as far as cultivating and honing the art of spycraft and the subtleties of maintaining a, a culture of, of saying something. And when you, when you go through a uh, when, you, when I when I listen to people who have been through Eton or they've been through one of these, these higher Ivy League British uh, schools, they learn yeah. to, in a certain sense, uh, speak a language and say something that has multiple meanings where you know it's just part of just reading shakespeare and like really learning yeah. it which you don't really get as much seriously inside of the american even the 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 upper level american establishment schools there's not this emphasis upon immersing yourself in a shakespearean um method i don't know how happy shakespeare would be about the misuse of his uh his mm-hmm. literature but did you find that there's a that there's something to the yeah. the culture itself um i think
2: probably within? yeah yeah, yeah. I I just want to say, I'm going to um, try and get some friends from Eton on and have a one-hour discussion about public schools because Westminster was the rebel public school. It was Whig and the others were Tory. And um, we had seven prime ministers and Eton had 14, but, I mean, still it was quite a lot. And it was 100 metres from House of Parliament, 50 metres from Westminster Abbey. We went to Abbey every morning. You know, it's where the royalty are crowned. So we felt, you know, we're at the top. And we're the intellectual school and we're also the rebel school. So Kim Philby, who was the spy for the most famous spy in history, he went to Westminster. And um, so the Westminster is always supposed to have an a, ambivalent relationship with the power. They're also they're in, they're insiders, but they're all supposed to be outsiders. And and the, one of the most famous pupils at Westminster was John Locke, who is the father of American liberalism. You know, this idea that you don't listen to the kings with their appealing to divine right, but liberalism, you know, you have self-ownership, you're in control of your own body, your own uh, future, and then you create society. It's bottom-up rather than top-down. So society is a contract between uh, free individuals. And I think if you read John Locke, it, it turns up in the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson hugely admired John Locke. So that's a good strand. That's a liberal strand of British. So maybe Westminster has some of that. There's always this rivalry between Westminster and Eton, you know, Westminster was scruffy and West uh, Eton was well-spoken and so on. And we had a, a, well, we, I don't know. I don't want to say I would, there were bad things about Westminster too, but, um, you know, I don't want to go into bash public school mode. I could put on that hat another time. You know, we didn't have floggings. They'd been abolished, but it was pretty primitive sometimes, but, um, Eton, uh, produced Boris Johnson. It produced David Cameron. And these are the guys who prosecuted the war against Russia. And if you go back, Eton has this, um, I guess, I mean, uh, all the old Etonians I've met have been extremely uh, well spoken I mean, perfect diplomats and politicians. I mean, total charmers, you know. You want to be friends with them. Uh, mm. Whereas uh, Westminster's could be a bit sort of more angular. Quite a lot of Jews at Westminster, actually. So th- 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 there's mm. a Jewish mentality infused a little bit of Westminster. A lot of Americans, yeah. too. Were, Eton was thoroughly English. Anyway... Right.
1: Um, you also had Orwell and uh, Aldous Huxley had he eaten as well, which was exactly, yeah, indeed. Cool,
2: right? So <laughs> Aldous, although I, I've gone off of Orwell a bit little bit, I see the policeman in, in him coming through a bit more and more. But anyway, but yeah, sure, yeah, it's it's you. I mean, public schools don't create personalities, but it's a fun game to play. Uh, they they used to say you had my dad went to Oxford. He said you had an Oxford personality or a Cambridge personality. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, they say you live up to those things. I don't know, but um, um I think that um. Well, we, I've heard, we I've heard about...
1: somewhere that someone told me that the the Oxford the Oxford uh, process tends to produce a lot of the doers, the Rhodes Scholars, whereas Cambridge more the thinkers. Uh, if you are going to be right. in, a, in a slightly yeah. higher, higher level right. you know, position within the management of the system, um, yeah, yeah the I think
2: Cambridge be. was the science and Oxford was the arts. Really simplifying it, so o- Oxford produced more politicians and prime ministers, and maybe writers. And I'd say it has a higher overall profile a little bit. Whereas Cambridge was, uh, you know, Bertrand Russell. I mean, I think Trinity College was won more Nobel prizes than Japan or something. You know, so that was their that was their thing. But I, I went to I went to Bristol actually to do maths, and Bristol was like for Oxbridge rejects, you know. Um, but <laughs> maths is is difficult. If you're not good at maths, you I, and I wasn't that good. You, I was. There were real geniuses I was, I was up against, and I, I anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'll let you ask a question. Um, no I, I think this is a good this is, I, I like this
1: casual uh, little autobiographical and also it, you know you're tying it also into um, a sensitivity to some of the the cultural matrices and dynamics yeah. shaping our world so I think this is good uh, but let's let's go for a little uh, quick uh, commercial break and then we'll yeah. uh, we'll come back okay. in and, and keep this chat going right TNTs Mark Morano this just in we have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways streets and other public areas. Yes ladies and gentlemen this appears to be the most effective way We have a uh, we have a field shot a correspondent on the scene Let's go to clip 4 and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute I don't want to see protests shut down. But obviously, when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that, you need to be dealt with.
0: I thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost and functionality our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units if you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing we want to hear from you we are a team of professional architects engineers and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future our opportunity zone fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that.
3: Our next steps to space. This
0: time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
1: All right, we're back for the second segment of the first hour of Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. we were just talking a little bit with uh, Peli Nirov-Taylor and uh, we are going through a little bit of the dynamics regarding what is shaping the culture of the managerial class, let's just say, of uh, the British Empire, past, present, in its, in its weird forms that that it's in today. But uh, Peli is somebody who's also also uh, kept his finger both on the pulse of the dynamics of history shaping Ukraine and Eastern Europe. And I want to ask you, now, now that Victoria Newland she did a weird press conference, didn't even know she was going to do it. You know, in Ukraine, did a little thing outside, said, you know, we got some surprises for Putin. I don't really know what she said in her meetings. I don't even think she necessarily met Zelensky, but she definitely when she goes somewhere, you know that there's going to be problems. But she also represents something as a process of manipulation of Ukraine as a whole that's been going on for a Mm. long time, maybe even as I mean, as far back as I I can imagine. Um, What can you say about what's your take right now on why she went there, what Ukraine, what they have in store for Ukraine, and and what is the historic dynamic shaping Ukraine as a chess piece with an empire?
2: Yeah, I think um, I think there's I haven't quite sorted out the relationship. The UK and the US are sometimes at loggerheads. And I think now is one of those periods. I think this idea of the special relationship is talked up very much. As being uh, an eternal thing, and and the Churchill is wheeled out, and occasionally Margaret Thatcher, but I mean I, the history I've been reading in the books. If we if we've got time, I can get into them because the, my past books, uh, m- to much to my surprise, reading secondary sources in mostly in English, show that the British are much more culpable in terms of conflicts than this nice history we get from Anglophone historians, you know, with London publishers. So I think they were quite responsible for World War One, along with the French and the Russians, actually not the Germans, and uh, they had a lot to do in World War II, but I don't want to go into that. That's a bit controversial, but there's some role there. And uh, Suez, of course, and the, the death of Dog Hammarskjöld, who was the UN Secretary General in 1960, the death of Ulf Palma in 1986. We can go back to those things. And this was part of my Swedish reading, because I read uh, Swedish. I'm half Swedish. And then, so, you know, I'm kind of sus- getting kind of suspicious by now. So when the Ukraine crisis came along, I think the dynamic is, you know, this um, Halford Mackinder, Talks about the, the land empires and the sea empires, and Britain and America are sea empires, and the land. The way they can get at the land empires and prevent the land empires from uniting against them is to find proxies inside the, the land empires that can divide and so they can divide them. And so um, I think that um, a few years ago, there's anxiety in Britain and America that uh, Russia, China, and Europe led by Germany, had, were getting on quite well. And Russia, uh, Russia Germany was prospering through cheap gas from Russia and cheap markets. I mean, they could sell their stuff to China and China uh, invested in, in Germany and sold cheap consumer goods to us Europeans. So we were all very happy. And um, I think that when Britain left the EU, uh, there was almost, there was a united front among the Europeans against Britain, basically on financial issues and on Northern Ireland. So, the British, I think, were really worried that they're going to be this, this, this nightmare. This, uh, the nightmare that the British have always had is that they're going to be isolated by a united Europe. Okay? And that was what led them to divide and conquer Europe in, before 1914. And now their worst nightmare geopolitically had happened. It was self inflicted, it was an own goal. So, I think what they, they sought to, to split russia and its natural resources and its cheap gas and its uh, manpower if you like or whatever large potential markets from germany which is you know know-how skills uh investment money and so on and they and they did that by weaponizing the nationalism of the poles and the ukrainians and the Baltics. and a lot of those connections uh actually started in the early 1990s when i was a journalist out there i mean it's it's a pretty once you get down to it, it's a pretty small world. If you move in a certain circle, you'll know people involved. So I probably, I knew that MI6 agents and I knew journalists were out there who were maybe working for MI6, and they kept their links alive with all the bolts, and they say, we've got your back, and they learned Estonian and Polish. I can mention their names. There are maybe five or six people that are on Twitter today. They'll follow each other's stuff, and they're rabidly, rabidly anti-Russian. I mean, it's libelous. I mean, they, 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 not a day passes without them Uh insulting russia you know and i mean (laughs) gratuitously it's um and um anyway so um the these guys i think that um the poles and the balls persuaded them you know we are the west you in ukraine can also become part of the west uh and they so they tugged at western ukraine and of course the east east ukraine is is pro-russian and russian speaking so the russians tugged back and Russia being a polycentric, uh, Ukraine being a polycentric, polyethnic, whatever, not poly—not polyethnic, but polycentric country with an eastern, like Canada in a way, a smaller version yeah. of Canada. I mean, let's say the Russians, the Americans little... occupied Quebec, you know, yeah. you're a very, very fragile entity, just like Belgium. And if someone pulls at one end, it's dangerous. Leave the Canadians to sort out your very brittle constitutional construct. But that's not what happened. And Canada is a much more robust country than Ukraine, you know. And you've had your problems still with with the Quebecois nationalism and you're always walking on eggshells. Well, I mean, the Ukrainians had even more reason to walk on eggshells, but they didn't do that, you know. And um, I think that, I don't know, I've heard rumors, I don't know more than I read, I don't have any privileged information, but I do follow some uh, pro-Russian blogs and so on. There's a guy called Scott Ritter as well who goes to Russia quite a lot. And he claims that uh, the Russians say that Zelens- Zelensky was a British agent, okay? He's got British bodyguards. And when you've got British bodyguards, that's probably, they're not so much watching over you. I mean, they're not just as protecting you against others, but they've also got an eye on you, that you follow the agenda, right? So yeah. who supplies you with bodyguards, I think, is a good clue to who controls you. And he has got SAS, the Special Air Service Bodyguards, walking around with him all the time. Yeah. So uh, and, and, uh, and people yeah, can watch a right uh, Scott,
1: Scott Ritter did a, a wonderful documentary on that with which yeah. people can watch and yeah it's not like he's lacking money to pay for his own Ukrainian bodyguards right? <laughs> yeah right. So you know if, if he's surrounded by British uh, supplied exactly, bodyguards. yeah yeah.
2: I don't know yeah. I, so I'm going to be a bit vague about this because I don't know exact dynamics but I think it's possible that um, that Zaluzhny who's the head of the military and who Zelensky wants, wanted to fire uh, represented, I read a I, got it. I haven't read, had a chance to read it, but, you know, Simon Hirsch, this investigative journalist, he has very good contacts in the CIA, and apparently he's saying that Zalushni has been making these peace feelers to both the Russians and the West. Yep. So for us who love peace, he is a good guy because he's trying to craft a peace, some kind of peace deal behind the fanatics, uh, Ukrainian fanatics. So who backs him? Well, could it be the Americans? Because I think the Americans are actually more restrained in Ukraine than the British are uh, because the Americans... Um, uh, I, I spoke to a guy yesterday. I don't know if you watched it. I mean, they're, they're more responsible because they've got um, more nukes and they're more vulnerable to... Run. Anyway, and the British always take bigger risks. And it could be that they... And they've always been on the front foot when it comes to escalation. They've all been... Apart from the poles, they're the hardest of the hardliners on Russia, I think. So if Zelensky is the hardline in Kiev, it wouldn't surprise me if the British are backing Zelensky and the Americans are backing Zeluzny or something like that. And unfortunately, I think Newland is an American hardliner. So she's uh, going to come down on the side of uh, continued war and try and quash any peace moves that are going on in Kiev. And from what I heard is, uh, I don't, has it happened? Has he been fired yet? Um, uh, but, um, if the goes, they might replace him with a guy called Budanov who is this, um, head of the military intelligence. And he has no experience of commanding armies and, um, I think the Americans uh, wanted to use Zaluzhnyi to create a, while there were peace feelers moving on, going on, create a defensive line like the Russians did in in Ukraine. And with that defensive line, calm down the war and stop these crazy attacks that the Ukrainians have been doing, killing hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, But Budanov doesn't have the chops to set up a defensive line, I don't think. But what he's there for is to carry out assassinations and provocations in russia i mean he's he and i think he's quite close to the british and the british have the special air service the special boat service and whatever and they're proud Mm -hmm. that they can do these operations so i fear that if he becomes uh in charge of ukraine's military ukraine is going to turn into an insurgency and carry out assassinations in russia one of which might i mean i wouldn't be surprised if they tried to assassinate putin or their plans to do that or anyway other high-ranking figures with the aim of getting russia to react and attack the west and then you've got world war three right mm-hmm. or c- create a provocation in i mean i think zelensky said at some point if you don't give us the money for next year we can always do things in your countries which of course they can i mean they're 10 million 5 million ukrainians in europe it's easy to arm them easy to give them weapons easy to gun down a few um swedes you know and of course i mean the swedes are, are so utterly propagandized against Russia that they'll believe it's the Russians, you know. So that you've got your case for war right there. That's what worries me. Right. Yeah. No. So a- we'll see. And and, and uh, Newland saying we've got a few surprises for Putin, you know. So is that just bluff? Is it all part of the game of scaring and counter-scaring? This is what we could do, but we won't, as long as you behave properly and both sides play that game. Or is it some? Is it? Are we heading to world war three which is british press has been going on about very much the last two weeks
1: well boris johnson also seems to have played a a certain role i didn't quite get the full story but it was at a period right early on in the the military intervention uh, by russia into ukraine whereby there was a peace deal that was on the cusp of of being made i i think it was in whether it was in bucharest i'm not too sure where where the the discussions were happening and the Ukrainian uh, negotiating team was being led by an individual who very soon thereafter ended up dying a very mysterious death. And uh, Boris Johnson, none other than Boris Johnson, hops on a plane, meets up with Zelensky and and everything kind of just goes to crap. Like it, nothing seems to happen. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all of the positive uh, developments towards negotiating a neutrality accord with NATO and agreeing not to get into NATO, allowing Russia to to get their terror, uh, uh, allowing yeah. those, those dunbass and, and Crimean uh, areas to to go and stay in Russia. All of that was was nixed and never never to be seen from again. So yeah, it does seem like yeah, the, the Boris Johnson's that, appearance there might have something to do with that.
2: Uh, Boris Johnson is like Tony Blair, which one I mean Tony Blair uh, is the d- devil of British prime ministers, but I don't wonder if Boris Johnson is almost as bad, you know. Um and it's funny, in the British press, when the British Guardian is a, is, a, is a neocon newspaper in disguise, so whenever it talks about Boris Johnson as uh, as a domestic leader, you know, with his right-wing agenda and the Guardian is sort of liberal left, they say this incompetent man who knows nothing, he, he's writing a book about Churchill being nagged by his wife and he has a young child in Downing Street and all this. this idiot doesn't know anything. Uh, but suddenly when he goes to Ukraine, he's a hero, right? So maybe yeah. but maybe this buffoon who can't run Britain is equally a buffoon in foreign affairs but they don't make any link he's a he's a sacred object when you're talking about foreign affairs in the entire british media he's a he's a kind of hero there's no no dissent in the british media from the from uh, the ukraine on the ukraine crisis and as you said what happened in 2022 i mean the um, uh oleg aristovich i think he was he's this very incredibly clever sort of um advisor type um, journalist PR man or something active sort of attractive seductive and he, he's he he was um he he knows what's going on and he think he was Zelensky's closest advisor he left Kiev I think he lives in New York now and he puts out these YouTube and uh, Rumble videos sort of telling it as it is you know and he said well you know he says things like you know, the the, the British have screwed us. They're killing us. They're dying to the last Ukrainian so that we can bleed Russia. Really, what we ought to do is have an alliance with Russia against the uh, West because the West doesn't really care about us. I mean, he says these things completely openly and he gets a lot of likes and things like that. And then he says, um, well, you know, we had this fantastic peace deal going and Boris Johnson, and, and it was the best thing. The Russians were actually really generous and we trusted. I mean, we thought, well, they're going to do something. And they didn't want to invade us. I mean, this sir, this attack on Kiev, according to these people, isn't, oh, the Russians wanted to take uh, Ukraine and then we fought them back. No, the Russians went in with a small army because they wanted to show what they were capable of. They said, well, we're going to nudge you into peace deal. This is what we could do. So they sent in small numbers of forces and didn't do very much. Anyway, um this this is as good a deal as we could get. I think it, I mean, they, the Russians were not even asking for Donbass, the eastern regions. They just wanted right. autonomy as they always wanted, like Quebec within Canada, you know, their own language, their own fed rights, and a federal system. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I guess everyone goes, oh, well, Putin's a liar and a gangster, so you couldn't trust him. But I mean, if he reneged on that, then you can do all the rest and go to war. But I mean, you, you start off. By s- trusting and see how far we'd go with that trust, you know, because the alternative is the war you have now and you'd get that anyway. But anyway, so he was saying, well, we, we got a really good deal. And, and now, if any peace deal with the Russians is going to be much worse because we've betrayed the Russians' trust. Um, so I think that, um, and but the British were instrumental at that. They said, we've got your back, we're going to support you. And it seems, I don't know, it seems that the Zelensky might have thought the British were going to go in with their army. Which of course, I mean, is is going to create World War Three. So I'm glad they didn't do that. But in a way, they deceived the Ukrainians that they'd go in militarily. But the Ukrainians were left alone to fight that war. And I think um uh I don't know. I, I don't know, if, I don't know if the British and Boris just underestimate the Russians. Uh they believe they're in propaganda, or they pretend that they underestimate the Russians to get others on side. And I think, for instance, they I mean, everyone knows that sanctions don't work anywhere, Um, but MI6 were going around uh, the capitals of Europe saying, you know, uh, don't worry. If the Russians attack, we'll sanction them to death, and they won't last two weeks. And then the regime will topple in in brackets. We could take over Russia and their mineral resources and turn Russia and its successor states into the new European Union. Wow, can you just imagine how powerful the... I don't know if they said this. I'm speculating, right? Right. the new European Union will include Russia, a democratic, free Russia, all the bad Russians out of office, and they'll all become happy Europeans, you know. And the Europeans might have said, well, that's great. Let's go for that, you know. Cheap gas and democracy and blah, blah, blah. It could be that the British thought, we don't believe that, but we're telling them that. So they'll go along with our sanctions package. And the other thing about the sanctions thing is that if the Ukrainians knew that the Europe uh, Again, it's speculation, but if Boris said to the the Ukrainians, if you create a provocation in Donbass and make it seem if it's the Russians, provoke the Russians to invade, start shelling them and so on, if they invade, we'll collapse their economy in two weeks. So the Ukrainians might have thought, well, okay, so we'll do that. We'll attack the Russians. We'll, We'll be like the little boy in the schoolyard who, or like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, pokes Jerry, you know, with a stick and Jerry runs after us. And then we've got the dog waiting for us. And that's what happened. And so they they, they started shelling the Donbass in mid-February 2022, and the Russians attacked. Um, this is just speculation, and I'm, I know it's a pro-Russian speculation, but I think it needs to be heard. So the Russians reacted, and then the Ukrainians thought, well, the, uh, the Brits are going to sanction Russia to death, so there won't be a war. Whoops! Russia wasn't sanctioned. I mean, Russia uh, did beautifully well out of those sanctions. So the British plan didn't work. Uh, but it said it could be that the British never believed in any way, or it could be that they believed it, you know. But I, what I'm saying is that historians have to ask questions and test these hypotheses against the archives and what people sa- really said. But I think that is a possibility. We've got to look at all these dynamics because yeah. that's what goes on. promises, Diplomacy is like that, lies and promises and betrayals. Absolutely. Anyway.
1: Yeah. No, I I and I think the the just the exercise of thinking about lies and intention as a at the very least nearly causal, if not causal, mechanism in shaping the events we're we read about in historical textbooks is a highly undervalued exercise, almost intentionally yeah. disregarded, to uh, which doesn't leave people, even if they've got PhDs in history research, if you, if you haven't flexed that muscle and explored the question of intention, how somebody could say one thing. And then intend something else that they don't tell you explicitly in words. Um, if you don't think about how that type of activity shapes wars, revolutions, peace treaties, uh, every, you don't know anything about history. <laughs> and so I, I, I when we come back from a break, I'd like to uh, to talk a little bit about the parallels between the current danger of a world war and the first world war of the 20th century that probably right. have a, more than a few th- points in common, although there weren't nuclear bombs back back in 1914 but we'll uh we'll touch on that when we come back from a quick commercial break on tnt radio give me a minute with tnt radio's steve malzberg ladies and
0: gentlemen it's the end of the week so how about a little dose of joe biden at his best to get you through the weekend
3: folks um uh i uh, if i were smart i'd say thank you and leave there's asylum asylum officers and over 100 cutting-edge inspe- inspection machines to help detect and stop fentanyl coming across our southwest border. Greedflation, shrinkflation. You see that article about the Snickers bar? Well, it's going to stop. America, we're tired of being played for suckers. We get thousands. Look, we, we, you know, we now have, we, before the recession, before the, the pandemic, Beer brewed here, <laughs> it is used to make the brew beer here in this the final. Oh, Earth Rider, thanks for the Great Lakes. I wonder why it's called it Cost 10 bucks to make it. 10 bucks to make it. We'll teach Donald Trump a, a valuable lesson. Don't mess with him in our Now, normally, this would be humorous, funny, you know but this is a man who's president of the
1: United States and looking for four more years on the job.
2: It's frightening. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malzberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern time right here on TNT.
3: Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome. Pre-diabetes does. One in three adults has pre-diabetes, but with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. And you can change the outcome. Take the one minute pre-diabetes risk test today. Go to doihaveprediabetes.org.
0: perception versus the truth this is connecting the dots with matt Aaron, matt Aaron on today's news talk tnt
1: radio all right we're back with the third segment of the first hour of connecting the dots with peli taylor i gotta say i'm really i'm really happy uh to have this first conversation with peli and uh and i've listened to your show um over the last couple of weeks you know now and again i pop in very very insightful commentary great guests but uh, just hear you speak and and expound upon your your thoughts, your analysis. It, it's very in- enjoyable and I know that any little thing you say I could scratch on we can have another s- secondary yeah. long conversation. So it's just there's so much to unpack. Um but really what we just left off with was um a bit of a dive into some of the hidden hands behind uh the the mess the mess that is has become Ukraine. Hmm. And um we were talking a little bit about the parallels behind, I mean, some people say there seems to be these two schools of thought of, of or many schools, but two big ones I'm thinking of in terms of the theory of history is either that there's this positivist way, this positivist approach of history of just taking the material um, measurable data that you could plot on a timeline and then impose some sort of uh, subjective interpretation if you want onto the thing after after you've, you've charted it objectively. Um, but a completely devoid of con- con- conscientious intention—that's th- th- not there. Or lies, not really there. The other one um, also presume, or that what's part of that is the idea that every single event is caused by that material event that preceded it. So you know, like yeah. what's happening today is probably caused. We're having this conversation because of what immediately happened uh, in Ukraine. So that's causing our conversation. Now that that's obviously not true. There's there's a lot of br- more subtle currents. The mm. other approach is that no, there, there, that things that happen sometimes a hundred years ago, sometimes thousands of years ago, are actually actively influencing the present. Um, and mm. in that sense, you, you, I could hear some voices saying, "Oh, World War One has nothing to do with World War Two, Two, uh, Three. It's separated by a whole century. There's no, there's people of everyone's dead now who was involved in mm. World War One. So what could there be in common?" However, I think you and me were coming from a different philosophy that no. There's a lot in common. In fact, there's probably the exact same game plan and principles at play, although in a mm. different generation, different makeup, or different form. Um, what What would you say about that? Are we on the danger of World War Three, and and is yeah. there really a parallel to World War One?
2: Well, I think that um, World War One started in the 1890s um, uh, because the British. It is a, you've heard of this Thucydides trap. Um, And they talk about that, China versus the US. This is a a mature empire wants to kill its rival before the rival becomes too powerful. So you've always got this in history. History is a succession of hegemons and powerful countries, right? And the hegemon is always going to be tempted. There's no emotion in this, you know, it's like law of the jungle, you know? Uh, uh, So... Uh, Amer- so uh, very serious scholars in America and elsewhere talk about the, just Google Thucydides trap. And in China, apparently, they, they treat World War One very seriously. And I'll get to that in a moment. Because they're very aware that they mustn't antagonize America to the point where America squelches China before China becomes too powerful. And it's not powerful, oh, China wants to kill America. It's powerful just because it's a rival. You know, it's not. That's the thing, right? That's uh, it's It's not self-defense. That's one thing. I mean, you say, well, it's justified to attack your rival before he becomes too more powerful. If he's about to kill you, take you out. But just because he's a competitor, no, I don't think that's acceptable, I think. But anyway, I mean, people's passions get the better of them. So the Chinese, with their methodical nature, studying World War I very closely, because there you also had the Thucydides trap and, or whatever, what you had was that mature power Britain, United Kingdom, which had colonized much of the world and killing the local populations whatever. And, 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 and there not been no, I mean, no one talks about that with the British empire. They said they, well, we, you know, we won it absentmindedly. We had a cup of tea and then it became British, you know, and the, the, um, <laughs> we Germany. Meant well,
1: we meant well. <laughs> exactly. and the well.
2: Well, you know, it's just, uh, um, and then, um, the, um, the, the Germans were less subtle. That's the thing. They didn't have they didn't have the charisma of the British in everything they did. They were square. They were everything. I mean, they couldn't smoothly charm the world in the way the British did. They were they were straightforward. They were angular in their personality. They were inexperienced diplomats and so on. Anyway, from the 1890s onwards, they were becoming a serious commercial rival to Britain because they were worked much harder. And they treated their working class much better than the British treated its working class. And they trained them up. They had 10 engineering schools and Britain didn't have a single engineering school. They were, they believed in professionalism and quality, whereas the British believed in amateurism, you know, and, and they had this effete sort of lazy upper class, you know, I'm I'm generalizing a little bit who were very arrogant and thought they had entitled to the world. And they lived off the um, partly because they had closed markets with the, with the empire. uh, And, 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 they controlled the world's information routes and the world's trade routes and but they were still worried that the germans were going to take over so i think um after the boer war uh, against south africa they the british were hated all around the world and there was a a starting an alliance that started off between germany russia and france against britain uh, based on this wave of public opinion that the british had killed a a, a nation in in Africa, the Boers, Afrikaners, who were kind of Dutch descendants, just because they wanted their gold, you know. And um, there was worldwide condemnation, like the Iraq War of two thousand three. You know, uh, every intellectual in entire world excoriated the British for that. So what the British methodically set about doing was, they said, we're not powerful to take on the European countries. We're going to isolate Germany and divide up these three countries, so make them all pounce on Germany and then we'll have our backs free and that's exactly what happened that the the Germans and the uh, for, uh, and, and the Russians became gradually more antagonistic to the Germans and um i mean they had their own motives but there were i mean there were there's a region of uh, G- France a germany called alsace which was had been french for a while and the french really wanted that back and i think the russians mainly wanted to please the french i mean they had such an idiot political class um and um i think that the 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 british once the french and the russians focused all their attention and hatred on the germans the british would carry on administering their empire without anyone bothering them basically and they didn't have an army but they could just blockade germany if it came to war so if you like france was britain's ukraine as it were they was expected to provide the cannon fodder in any war and i think um it was not a war of good guys and bad guys, the first world war. we we in the West and in the Anglo countries are so brainwashed by this idea of Churchill, mm. you know, the British, the battle of Britain fighting against the Holocaust because they conjoined the Holocaust. I mean, it's, it, it, the British did not fight the battle of Britain for the Holocaust because that wasn't even known then, but it's become this grand narrative of the West that um, we Democrats fought evil powers to stop holocausts, you know, and, um, the british um uh, that may be world war ii i don't even want to go into that because it's such a toxic area but there's some revisionists about world war ii and the, the british i don't know but just world war one um was not that kind of war it was a world its war of two not autocratic but i mean the germany had a had a Reichstag where every person could vote uh, and then had it since 18, 1867 and the british couldn't vote so in some ways uh, kaiser's germany was more democratic than um than britain and uh, many mm-hmm. german american scholars wrote about this they used germany as, as a model and but all that has been memory hold since then since the british won world war one anyway um the british demonize the british have a very powerful media oh. and they demonize the german kaiser in this right. using almost the same language as they use against putin it's quite chilling. i was just thinking was that, that
1: same thing the 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 baby eating huns of the Germans. That H. Wells crafted for uh, for our psyche, and Walter Littman and, and Bernays were all pushing as this anti-human right. subhuman Mordock or right. the Mordok. Beast of
2: Berlin, the yeah. jackbooted Germans. And it's yeah. funny you can you can read books. I've, I've read books about the development of the German uh, character as seen by the British press. So in the 1850s, they were poets and lovers and royalty and funny people who were incapable of organization because they they were in many different. It was like a land of fairy tales and castles. And then in the yeah. 1880s, where they were serious minded people, far too intellectual for the British, read too many books for their own good, uh, were very neat and organized and bureaucratic, but harmless. And then when they became a bit more powerful, they became jackbooted Huns who did signals and fought duels with sabres and were totally unfree. And they all had these moustaches. And that's more or less... The image since. Right. I mean, that image has lasted. The Germans are blood libeled basically by the British. The image of the Germans in the world is is always going to be there until they do something about it. But I'm saying this long preceded Hitler and the and the SA and the SS. It was there from about 1905 and it changed in the course of five years from being nice guys, but boring to being aggressors and huns and you see this and now that and that kaiser who's actually the most peaceful p- person in germany was a liberal he was pro british because his mother was british and he couldn't understand why do the british hate me so and then you have got putin year after year for 20 years the british are attacking him you know and in some measures he was a british asset but from what i heard and he's a liberal some people say compared to the hardliners who really want a third world war you know so that's another parallel a third parallel could be that you, you'll have these false. I mean, you had the assassination in Sarajevo that set off the whole thing, right? Well, that was what I found was that the 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 um, uh, the British were in the back, background all the time. They wanted a war in Europe. They wanted to squeeze the Germans, but the French and the Russians were really on board as well. And in my research, the the British that they actually had an offensive battle plan to attack Germany. Why? because they were attacking from two sides. And if they could uh, attack before the Germans could defeat one or the other, then they could be, they could be, beat the Germans. Because everyone knew that the Germans had the most powerful army, but they were surrounded by their enemies. So the plan was that the, the French would hold the German army on the Western Front and the Russians would go and seize Berlin in three weeks. And with, that's also been memory hold. So, w- but yeah. what happened was that they needed a pretext for that war to happen. The first battles were fought on on, on French and on German and uh, German territory, both the East and West. What happened was the Germans were so good that they defeated the French on the Western Front and went right into almost into Paris and they defeated the Russians. So it made it seem as if the Germans were the aggressors. It's more complicated than that. But anyway, they needed an actuating event. And that was the assassination in Sarajevo. We've known for 100 years that there was a Serbian intelligence connection to the assassins who were five, seven boys from a Bosnian Muslim background. But it's also been known for 100 years, although it's, the evidence is less cut and dried, that the the, the the Russian ambassador in Belgrade gave the go-ahead after talking to the, to the Tsar. So there was a Russian connection. They gave the orders. They said, go ahead with this assassination because they thought, because Austria was Germany's ally, they knew there would be a worldwide conflagration. So just to make the point, I'm not pro always pro-Russian, because yeah. in these in this instance, the Russians were the bad guys. I'm just saying that an assassination... Well, no, it, it,
0: it, it
1: seems like there was a, uh, th- this gets at the the fifth column aspect of Russia, which has always been, there's always been a deep state of every country, and Russia is no exception to yeah. that. And, and it seems like this thing was going on behind the back of, there's no way, in my mind, that Tsar Nicholas II knew about this, right?
2: No, I think it was one of the Grand Dukes. And they were hmm. they were married to Monte, uh, Montenegrins who were very closely related to Serbia. Yeah. I, okay. And interestingly, Rasputin was a great peace man of peace. <laughs> we don't know. I, I Do discovered think of that recently a... too. Yeah. I, I always had yeah. this
1: very, very Disney, um, you know, he's just this evil deviant occultist. Right. And there were a lot of occultists in the courts for sure. But it 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 seems like he was actually a patriot working with Sergei Vita at a certain point to try to r- keep Russia out of the war.
2: I, the thing about Russia then was, I mean, I think they were the victims of World War One because they did this because there's this desperate need to be on, on the good side of the French or whatever, this pro-Western element in Russia. The Russian Conservatives says, don't ally yourself with the British and the French. They'll screw you over. They didn't care about you. They'll use you. And um, the, the, but the, the, the Russians went ahead. And of course, they got Bolshevism. I mean, the Russians started to plea for peace from 1916 onwards, but the British wouldn't let them sue for peace. And that's why the French- Russian Revolution happened. The Russian Revolution happened because the Bolsheviks and the Social Democrats before them offered peace. <laughs> so, right. whatever else other faults the Bolsheviks had, it's, it's the fact that they offered a very attractive political program that meant a break with the West. Anyway, um, yeah. So, what I what I what I fear this justice assassination parallel is these events can trigger off wars, right? And mm-hmm. World War One killed an entire generation, killed European civilization. Millions of poets, engineers, writers, whatever, died in the Somme mud or in Passchendaele where the Canadians were active, you know. And what? And for what? For nothing. World yeah. War Three is going to kill the planet and it could happen after an assassination. If, someone, if the Ukrainians assassinate Putin or something like that, or Trump, if someone assassinates Trump, and then blames it on the russians you know finds a f- kind of fake trail lead- leading to there's the so russians. many there's so many
1: points right like there's so many different uh, aspects cuz i mean the, the thing about the the black hand in serbia is that you you've got a um an intelligence agency managed terrorist cell which is activated to get political effects and activate a chain reaction that is very predictable for those who are manipulating the show and today we have no shortage of of intelligence agency managed uh, terrorist organizations uh, whether yeah, on the exactly, left on the right exactly. within america within europe within the middle east there's so many points of things that could yeah. be activated and no shortage of uh, of military treaties as well with nato's ar- article five or um
2: exactly you
1: know,
2: so yeah. w- what happened with it in 1914 was one attack one alliance alliances are transmission belts for war okay so the the serbs uh austria attacked serbia because they Russia was connected to Serbia, so they were dragged in. They were France was connected to Russia, so they were dragged in. The British were connected to France, so they were dragged in. Bingo, World War. So, as I said, we're we're living in a very unstable world where, as you said, assassinations could happen anywhere. There could be Ukrainians on the streets of Stockholm right now, and there are no protection for Swedish people in Sweden are still living at peace. They have no idea what's going on in Ukraine, a few thousand kilometers away, and there could be a big there could be assassination and. The, the, the British media are going to grind into action and they're going to find some Cyrillic lettering on a letter or something, you know, or a Russian gun with Russian fingerprints, and they say, oh, well, we've got to go to war with Russia now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, that, and, and, exactly and, and this so. intense propaganda, and nobody will have time to think, and everyone will pile in there, and presto, we're at war. Kelly,
1: that's a, a heavy dose of, of reality. I thank you so much. I hear the the music slowly Thanks. coming on here. How can people better follow your work and uh, and keep up to date with your, your well, work? Well, f-
2: follow my show on TNT. It's at 12 noon UK time, 1 p.m. European time. Or find me on Amazon. Just type my name and you'll find my books there and, and download them and read them. And get in touch with me via my TNT address. Thanks.
1: All right. Yeah, no, thank you, Pelly Taylor. And uh, we have a lot more to go through in the second and third hour with Mel Kay and David Goslin So tune in more for tune in for TNT radio live for more.